Well, my name's Don Blair. I'm one of the elders here at Northfield, and I have the privilege of looking into the Word with us this morning. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 18, and I believe that's page 939 in your pew Bibles. Romans 1, starting with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for they changed natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, faithless, heartless, Ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Would you pray with me? Father, would you open your word to us this morning? Lord, would you um, overcome my inadequacies and open all of our hearts that we might give you the glory, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Romans is considered by Paul to be one of his, to be his greatest. It revolutionized the life of Martin Luther. It took him from the bondage of the Roman Catholicism of his day and into the freedom which he was then to enjoy. He said it is really the chief part of the New Testament. John Calvin said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we then have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. In Tyndale, it is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, a light and a way into the whole Bible. So we have a distinct privilege this next few weeks to be looking into this book of Romans. Doug gave us a bit of an introduction last week. And uh, I want to add just a little bit to that as an overview. The book divides nicely into five sections. 
and they all begin with S. Now I know there's lots of other ways you can divide the book, but I kind of like this one because it's relatively easy to remember. The five S's are sin, covered in chapter 1, then through chapter 3, verse 20. Salvation, which is covered in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5. Sanctification, chapters 6 through 8. Um, sovereignty in chapters 9 through 11, and service in chapters 12 through So in this 10-part series, we're going to be looking at the first five chapters, which cover sin and salvation. So again, in chapter 1 through the 20th verse of chapter 3, Paul puts forth the case that all men are sinners. Then in the rest of chapter 3 and in chapters 4 and 5, he gives the answer for that problem, which is the plan of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Last week, Doug took us through the first 17 chapters, I'm sorry, first 17 verses of chapter 1, looking at what the gospel is, its power, not to be ashamed of it, and that the chief manifestation in my life should be that I make Jesus the Lord of my life. So we're considering this morning the rest of chapter 1, in which he makes the case for the Gentiles being under sin, and just how that happened. And then in chapter 2, Starting next week, he'll make the same case for the Jews. So looking at this passage, I want to focus on what we can learn from what happened to these people about whom he is writing. Verse 18 tells us this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by this suppress the truth. That verse seems to me to kind of summarize and encapsulate the rest of the verses in the chapter. And with that in mind, our take-home message for today is this, that suppressing the truth has consequences. And kind of the outline, we'll look first at what is the truth, secondly, how did they suppress the truth, and thirdly, what were the consequences. And I'm going to focus mainly on the first two of these three because the consequences really don't need much explanation. So I want to focus instead on how we can avoid those consequences. So what is the truth? Looking first at the passage, then we'll look at some other scripture. Paul tells us in verse 19 that what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. What has he made plain? his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. How has he made it plain? By the things that were made at the creation of the world. And implied in that is that God is the creator, which we're told plainly later in verse 25. David says the same thing in the first six verses of Psalm 19. In uh, verses 1 and 2, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And in Psalm 8, 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So the truth mentioned here is that God has plainly made himself known to men 
in creation. What else do we know about the truth? Well, David goes on in the second half of Psalm 19, where in verses 7 through 8 we read this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So these terms, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, all refer to God's word. And you might recognize those verses as also appearing in Psalm 119, where all 176 verses of that psalm are in praise of the scriptures. So Psalm 19 kind of gives us the whole story in a nutshell. Men can know God through verses 1 through 6, and they can know God through his word, verses 7 through 14. Looking at the New Testament, John 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Later in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know from these verses that Jesus is the word. Jesus said then in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is the word. Jesus is the truth. The word is truth. So the question for us is, if the word is truth, what are we doing with it? Are you seeking the truth by regularly being in the word? Am I seeking the truth by regularly being in the word? Do we take the time to read a passage or a a scripture um, or a chapter and think about what it says and what it might mean? Or do we just read the verse that happens to be in the devotional for today and call that our time in the Word? Are we in the Word with others? Are you in a Bible study? Are you in a small group? Are you having time in the Word together as a family? Falsehood and lies are rampant in our culture today. I'm sure you've heard that the best way to combat falsehood is to know the truth. For example, people who handle money regularly can more easily spot a counterfeit bill because they're very familiar with the real thing. Um, A jeweler may easily recognize a fake gem because he is familiar with the real thing. And we can come against the lies of Satan better when we know I believe there's a reason that truth is the first in the list of spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, where we read in the first half of verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. I mentioned a minute ago, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. I considered that verse at our recent communion service. Sanctification is the process by which we grow spiritually. And so if truth is that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us spiritually, should we not want to know as much of the truth 
as we possibly can. We should be eager to be in the Word because it's our spiritual growth hormone, if you will. So God has made the truth plain to us in creation and in His Word. So they knew the truth, but they suppressed it. Let's look at how did they suppress the truth. Verse 18 tells us it was by their unrighteousness. But subsequent verses get a bit more specific. 21, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. Verse 25, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And in verse 28, they did not acknowledge God. Excuse me, let's consider for a few minutes the last three of those. First, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. So we might ask, how is failure to honor God and failure to give thanks a suppression of the truth? The truth, is, as we've seen, is that God is creator of both the universe and Let me suggest that giving thanks is honoring God because it gives credit to him for all that we have. It acknowledges him as the creator and us as his creation. Or as we sometimes hear people say, God is God and we are not. When we fail to give thanks, we're suppressing that truth. And just as an aside, but I won't talk about this now, but I believe that failure to pray is also a suppression of the truth for the same reasons, because prayer is acknowledging to God that we have needs and that we're relying upon him for the provision of those needs. And failure is a suppression of the truth that he is the creator and we are his needy creation. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the question is, do we give thanks in all things? In the last several years, I've kind of taken on this challenge for myself, and I challenge you to do the same thanks in all things. Of course, when things go well, it's pretty easy to give thanks, but sometimes it's easy not to give thanks because we kind of fall into the trap of assuming, well, things always go well, and I kind of deserve for them to go well, and uh, so I forget that those are blessings from God. When we get into bed at night after a good day, do you take a few minutes just to thank God? For the good day. We can so easily take for granted our many material resources. We're greatly blessed in material things compared to most of the rest of the world. Being thankful for those blessings takes some time and effort, but it's critically needful. And scripture makes that very plain. Things don't go well. Do we thank God for that? It's harder and it takes practice. When the day has not gone well, can we thank him for that and just acknowledge that we're trusting that he's working out the things that didn't go well for our own good? Do we thank him when our situation is not what we would desire, such as having health problems, maybe being single, maybe having lost a spouse? 
being in a difficult relationship, maybe having a relationship ended, or being mandated to wear a mask. Or you, you can plug in whatever your situation is. This is when thankfulness becomes very hard, but biblically, that's our command, to give thanks in all things and in all circumstances. This is a very minor example, but it does illustrate my point. As some of you know, I recently had the opportunity to take a trip and visit some friends and family in the east. And after I'd driven all day for the first day, I stopped at a restaurant for supper with plans to drive a bit further before I stopped for the night. Well, something happened to my order. I, didn't, I never did fully understand what it was, and they apologized profusely for it. But the end result was it took 45 minutes for me to get my food. And then, oh, eater, and so it ended up being well over an hour that I was in there before I got back on the road. But um, trying to remember to give thanks in all things, I thanked God for the delay and um, acknowledged that perhaps he didn't want me to be on the road at the time that I would normally have been there. I confess, of course, that I don't remember to do that all the time, and you won't either. But I challenge all of us to work on it and practice it knowing that only by consistent practice does something become a habit. And we want it to become a habit because thankfulness is a suppression of the truth. Another way they suppressed the truth is in verse 25. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. One way this was done, according to verse 23, was by exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They were literally worshiping idols. Now, I doubt that any of us are bowing down to statues of men and animals or worshiping them, but let me suggest that what too often does happen is that we worship and serve ourselves rather than God. So I think more than we realize, and probably most of the time, without even realizing it at all, it's not unique to us. You know, the prophet Haggai had to write to the Jews in Jerusalem who had returned for the purpose of rebuilding the temple, but then after they started it, they stopped, and they stopped because they were working on their own houses, and he had to reprimand them for that, that they were serving themselves by building their own houses rather than the house of God. And so whatever, whenever we attach time and effort to meeting our desires, we may be serving ourselves rather than God. Now, is that always? No, certainly not, but let me give you two examples to consider. First, how often do we say that we just don't have time in our busy day to be in the Word or prepare for a Bible study or prepare to teach a Sunday school class, but we seem to have time to do other less important things? Now, I suspect that some of you may be thinking, well, now that's pretty easy for him to say because he's retired and he has all kinds of free time that I don't. Um, believe it or not, I struggle with this now more than I ever did in the past, and here's why. Because with that extra time, it's just too easy to want to use it and relax and do something fun than to 
do something that would perhaps be more profitable. For example, when I was working, Lori and I were raising our family, we almost never watched TV, and that was mostly because we just didn't have time. Now, I have more time. And I do enjoy watching some TV, although it can get old pretty fast, but it sometimes becomes an issue when I do have some of that extra time as to how am I going to use it. Do I watch some TV and some movies? Yes, I do, and I enjoy that, but I have to be careful that I don't do it too much and to the neglect of important things. A second example, you might have noticed from the bulletin and pulpit announcements over time that we have difficulty filling certain volunteer needs. We in leadership sometimes wonder why is that the case? Is it because we, and I include myself in this, that we're more interested in serving ourselves than the church? It's something for us to consider. Our relationship with the local church and with our creator is significantly significantly strengthened by serving. And here are two passages that speak to the value of serving. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who will himself be watered. In commenting on this verse, Charles, Pur Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, In watering others, we ourselves are watered. We often find in attempting to teach others that we gain instruction for ourselves. Our own comfort is also increased by our working for others. End of quote. The other passage is Ephesians 4, 15 to 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, holds itself up in love. Now we know that Christ's body is the church who builds up the body. The scripture says the body builds itself up. I don't know if you've thought about that before. Here at NCF, the elders don't build up the body. The ministers don't build up the body. The deacons don't build up the body. Doug, Brady, and Mike don't build up the body, but we all play a part, but it's all of us. Each one of us doing his or her part that builds up the body. Think about that. But having said that, let me finish this example on a positive note. I firmly believe that one of our great strengths here at Northfield is the number of people involved in serving of various ministries. We don't have a large paid staff who are responsible for carrying out the different ministries. So much of that work is being done by many of you. And the leadership team is very aware of that, and we're very thankful for it. So if you're serving, you're being blessed, and you are a blessing to all the rest of us. If you would like to begin serving, we would welcome you to do so. And finally, a third way to suppress the truth is to God. We find that in verse... 28, failure to acknowledge God is tantamount to believing that he does not even exist. Now, I trust that no one in this room or listening online holds the belief that God doesn't exist, although some of you may be questioning it. And I believe those most vulnerable to this question are you students who are in college or who may be 
starting college soon because it's very likely that you are going to be presented with some very intellectual and very logical arguments for the non-existence of God. And I can assure you it's going to be very difficult for you to refute those or resist them. I can only challenge you to immerse yourself in the Word. Remember what you've learned at home if you were raised by God-honoring parents. Remember what you've learned from Brady's good teaching in youth group. Remember what our text here in Romans 1 says, that not acknowledging God will have consequences. So we've looked at what is the truth, how did they suppress the truth, and finally, what were the consequences? Well, we can read those in verses 21 to 31. They include becoming fools, being given up to impurity, being given up to dishonorable passions, being given up to a debased mind. I don't plan these verses. What's written in them is plain, and as one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, often says, you are smart people. You can read it for yourselves, and you can figure it out. However, as you read them, don't too quickly pass them off as not applying to you. While you may indeed not struggle with the dishonorable passions mentioned in verses 26 and 27, I don't believe any of us can get through the list in verses 29 to 31 without finding at least one thing and probably several that would apply to us. But the important parts of this passage for us this morning, I believe, are what leads to these consequences and how we can there. And that's what I've tried to center on. So, are you thoroughly discouraged now? Uh, the message has been mostly about what we do wrong, but with some, I hope, uh, challenging application. Is there any good news? Yes, there certainly is. We have to go back to last week's scripture about the gospel, which literally means good news. And that'll be considered in more detail when we get into chapters 4 and 5, but I don't want to leave us discouraged today because into the midst of our failures and sin, God sent his son to pay the penalty for that sin that we might be redeemed, reconciled, and reap rewards rather than consequences. And we do that by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning death. So if you've not taken that step of faith, and you'd like to, I'd encourage you to come talk to me afterwards. I'll stay up here. Bill will be the elder in the office, or you can talk to any one of the other elders or anyone who you know has taken that step for help in doing that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. And in a world of... <clears throat> Deception, we thank you that we have your word as an anchor of the truth. Father, may we know that truth. May we not suppress it in any way. And may we continue to recognize and stand against the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil. And with your help and your strength, we can do that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.